Chapter Ten, Part Three, of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter Ten: Emperors Decius, Gallus, Aemilianus, Valerian, and Gallienus. Part Three. One, As the prosperity of the Franks composed one of the greatest and most enlightened nations of Europe, the powers of learning and ingenuity had been exhausted in the discovery of their unlettered ancestors. To the tales of credulity have succeeded the systems of fancy. Every passage has been sifted, every spot has been surveyed, that might possibly reveal some faint traces of their origin. It has been supposed that Pannonia, that Gaul, that the northern parts of Germany, gave birth to that celebrated colony of warriors. At length the most rational critics, rejecting the fictitious immigrants of ideal conquerors, have acquiesced in a sentiment whose simplicity persuades us of its truth. They suppose that about the year 240 a new confederacy was formed under the name of Franks, by the old inhabitants of the lower Rhine and the wiser. The present circle of Westphalia, the Landgraviate of Hesse, and the duchies of Brunswick and Lüneburg, were the ancient of the Chorsi, who, in their inaccessible morasses, defied the Roman arms, of the Cherusci, proud of the fame of Armenius, of the Catai, formidable by their firm and intrepid infantry, and of several other tribes of inferior power and renown. The love of liberty was the ruling passion of these Germans, the enjoyment of it their best treasure. The word that expressed that enjoyment, the most pleasing to the ear, they deserved, they assumed, they maintained the honourable appellation of Franks, or freemen, which concealed, though it did not extinguish, the peculiar names of the several states of the confederacy. Tacit consent and mutual advantage dictated the first laws of the Union. It was gradually cemented by habit and experience. The League of the Franks may admit of some comparison with the Helvetic body, in which every canton, retaining its independent sovereignty, consults with its brethren in the common cause, without acknowledging the authority of any supreme head or representative assembly. But the principle of the two confederacies was extremely different. A peace of two hundred years has rewarded the wise and honest policy of the Swiss. An inconsistent spirit, the thirst of rapine, and a disregard to the most solemn treaties, disgraced the character of the Franks. The Romans had long experienced the daring valour of the people of Lower Germany. The union of their strength threatened Gaul with a more formidable invasion, and required the presence of Gallienus, the heir and colleague of imperial power. Whilst that prince, and his infant son Salonis, displayed in the court of Treves, the majesty of the empire, its armies, were ably conducted by their general, Posthumus, who, though he afterwards betrayed the family of Valerian, was ever faithful to that great interests of the monarchy. The treacherous language of panegyrics and medals darkly announces a long series of victories. Trophies and titles attest, if such evidence can attest, 
the fame of Posthumus, who is repeatedly styled the conqueror of the Germans and the saviour of Gaul. But a single fact, the only one indeed of which we have any distinct knowledge, erases in a great measure these monuments of vanity and adulation. The Rhine, though dignified with the title of safeguard of the provinces, was an imperfect barrier against the daring spirit of enterprise with which the Franks were actuated. Their rapid devastations stretched from the river to the foot of the Pyrenees. Nor were they stopped by these mountains. Spain, which had never dreaded, was unable to resist the inroads of the Germans. During twelve years, the greatest part of the reign of Gallienus, that opulent country was the theatre of unequal and destructive hostilities. Tarragona, the flourishing capital of a peaceful province, was sacked and almost destroyed. And so late as the days of Orosus, who wrote in the fifth century, wretched cottages, scattered amidst the ruins of magnificent cities, still recorded the rage of the barbarians. When the exhausted country no longer supplied a variety of plunder, the Franks seized on some vessels in the ports of Spain, and transported themselves into Mauritania. The distant province was astonished with the fury of these barbarians, who seemed to fall from a new world, as their name, manners, and complexion were equally unknown on the coast of Africa. 2. In that part of Upper Saxony, beyond the Elbe, which is at present called the Marquisat of Lusca, there existed in ancient times a sacred wood, the awful seed of the superstition of the Suavi. None were permitted to enter the holy precincts without confessing, by the servile bonds and suppliant posture, the immediate presence of the sovereign deity. Patriotism contributed, as well as devotion, to consecrate the sonny world, or wood of the Semnons. It was universally believed that the nation had received its first existence on that sacred spot. At stated periods, the numerous tribes who gloried in the Suavic blood resorted thither by their ambassadors, and the memory of their common extraction was perpetrated by barbaric rites and human sacrifices. The wide extended name of the Suavi filled the interior countries of Germany, from the banks of the Uda to those of the Danube. They were distinguished from the other Germans by their peculiar mode of dressing their long hair, which they gathered into a rude knot on the crown of their head, and they delighted in an ornament that showed their ranks more lofty and terrible in the eyes of the enemy. Jealous as the Germans were of military renown, they all confessed the superior valour of the Suavi, and the tribes of the Espetes and Tencteri, who, with a vast army, encountered the dictator Caesar, declared that they esteemed it not a disgrace to have fled before a people to whose arms the immortal gods themselves were unequal. In the reign of the Emperor Caracalla, an innumerable swarm of Servi appeared on the banks of the main, and in the neighbourhood of the Roman provinces, in quest either of food, of plunder, or of glory. The hasty army of volunteers gradually coalesced into a great and permanent nation, and as it was composed from so many different tribes, 
assumed the name of Almany, or Allman, to denote at once their various lineage and their common bravery. The latter was soon felt by the Romans in many a hostile inroad. The Almany fought chiefly on horseback, but their cavalry was rendered still more formidable by a mixture of light infantry, selected from the bravest and most active of the youth, whom frequent exercise had inured to accompany the horsemen in the longest march, the most rapid charge, or the most precipitate retreat. This warlike people of Germans had been astonished by the immense preparations of Alexander Severus. They were dismayed by the arms of his successor, a barbarian equal in valour and fierceness to themselves. But still hovering on the frontiers of the empire, they increased the general disorder that ensued after the death of Decius. They inflicted severe wounds on the rich provinces of Gaul. They were the first who removed the veil that covered the feeble majesty of Italy. A numerous body of the Almany penetrated across the Danube, and through the Riatine Alps, into the plains of Lombardy, advanced as far as Ravenna, and displayed the victorious banners of barbarians almost in sight of Rome. The insult and danger rekindled in the Senate some sparks of their ancient virtue. Both the emperors were engaged in far distant wars, Valerian in the east, and Gallienus on the Rhine. All the hopes and resources of the Romans were in themselves. In this emergency, the senators resumed the defiance of the Republic, drew out the Praetorian guards, who had been left to garrison the capital, and filled up their numbers by enlisting into the public service the stoutest and most willing of the plebeians. The Almany, astonished with the sudden appearance of an army more numerous than their own, retired into Germany, laden with spoil, and their retreat was esteemed as a victory by the unwarlike Romans. When Gallienus received the intelligence that his capital was delivered from the barbarians, he was much less delighted than alarmed with the courage of the Senate, since it might one day prompt them to rescue the public from domestic tyranny as well as from foreign invasion. His timid ingratitude was published to his subjects, in an edict which prohibited the senators from exercising any military employment, and even from approaching the camps of the legions. But his fears were groundless. The rich and luxurious nobles, sinking into their natural character, accepted as a favour this disgraceful exemption from military service. And as long as they were indulged in the enjoyment of their baths, their theatres, and their villas, they cheerfully resigned the more dangerous cares of the empire to the rough hands of peasants and soldiers. Another invasion of the Almany, of a more formidable aspect, but more glorious event, is mentioned by a writer of the lower empire. Three hundred thousand are said to have been vanquished in a battle near Milan, by Gallienus in person, at the head of only ten thousand Romans. We may, however, with great probability, ascribe this incredible victory, either to the credulity of the historian, or to some exaggerated exploits of one of the emperor's lieutenants. It was by arms of a very different nature, that Gallienus endeavoured to protect Italy from the fury of the Germans. He espoused Pippa, the daughter of a king of the Marcomanni, a Suevic tribe, 
which was often confounded with the Almany in their wars and conquests. To the father, as the price of his alliance, he granted an ample settlement in Pannonia. The native charms of unpolished beauty seemed to have fixed the daughter in the affections of the inconsistent emperor, and the bands of policy were more firmly connected by those of love. But the haughty prejudice of Rome still refused the name of marriage to the profane mixture of a citizen and a barbarian, and has stigmatized the German princess with the opprobrious title of concubine of Gallienus. 3. We have already traced the emigration of the Goths from Scandinavia, or at the least from Prussia, to the mouth of the Borysthianus, and have followed their victorious arms from the Borysthianus to the Danube. Under the reigns of Valerian and Gallienus, the frontier of the last-mentioned river was perpetually infested by the inroads of Germans and Sarmatians. But it was defended by the Romans with more than usual firmness and success. The provinces that were the seat of war recruited the armies of Rome with an inexhaustible supply of hardy soldiers, and more than one of these Illyrian peasants attained the station and displayed the abilities of a general. Though flying parties of the barbarians, who incessantly hovered on the banks of the Danube, penetrated sometimes to the confines of Italy and Macedonia, their progress was commonly checked, or their return intercepted, by the imperial lieutenants. But the great stream of the Gothic hostilities was diverted into a very different channel. The Goths, in their new settlement of the Ukraine, soon became masters of the northern coast of the Euxine. To the south of that inland sea were situated the soft and wealthy provinces of Asia Minor, which possessed all that could attract, and nothing that could resist a barbarian conqueror. The banks of the Borysianus are only sixty miles distant from the narrow entrance of the peninsula of Crim Tartary, known to the ancients under the name of Chersonese Taurica. On that inhospitable shore, Euripides, embellishing with exquisite art the tales of antiquity, has placed the scene of one of his most affecting tragedies. The bloody sacrifices of Diana, the arrival of Orestes and Pallades, and the triumph of virtue and religion over savage fierceness, serve to represent an historical truth that the Tauri, the original inhabitants of the peninsula, were in some degree reclaimed from their brutal manners by a gradual intercourse with the Grecian colonies which settled along the maritime coast. The little kingdom of Bosphorus, whose capital was situated on the straits, through which the Meotis communicates itself to the Euxine, was composed of degenerate Greeks and half-civilized barbarians. It subsisted, as an independent state, from the time of the Philippinesian War, was, at last, swallowed up by the ambition of Mithridates, and, with the rest of his dominions, sunk under the weight of the Roman arms. From the reign of Augustus, the kings of Bosphorus were the humble, but not useless, allies of the empire. By presents, by arms, and by a slight fortification drawn across the isthmus, they effectually guarded against the roving plunderers of Sarmatia, the axis of a country which, 
from its peculiar situation and convenient harbours, commanded the Euxine Sea and Asia Minor. As long as the sceptre was possessed by a lineal succession of kings, they acquitted themselves of their important charge with vigilance and success. Domestic factions and the fears, or private interest, of obscure usurpers who seized on the vacant throne, admitted the Goths into the heart of Bosphorus. With the acquisition of a superfluous waste of fertile soil, the conquerors obtained the command of a naval force, sufficient to transport their armies to the coast of Asia. The ships used in the navigation of the Euxine were of a very singular construction. They were slight, flat-bottomed barks framed of timber only, without the least mixture of iron, and occasionally covered with a shelving roof, on the appearance of a tempest. In these floating houses the Goths carelessly trusted themselves to the mercy of an unknown sea, under the conduct of sailors pressed into the service, and whose skill and fidelity were equally suspicious. But the hopes of plunder had banished every idea of danger, and a natural fearlessness of temper supplied in their minds the more rational confidence, which is the just result of knowledge and experience. Warriors of such a daring spirit must have often murmured against the cowardice of their guides, who required the strongest assurances of a settled calm before they would venture to embark, and would scarcely ever be tempted to lose sight of the land. Such, at least, is the practice of the modern Turks, and they are probably not inferior in the art of navigation to the ancient inhabitants of Borosphorus. The fleet of Goths, leaving the coast of Circassa on the left hand, first appeared before Pytus, the utmost limits of the Roman provinces. A city provided with a convenient port, and fortified with a strong wall. Here they met with a resistance more obstinate than they had reason to expect from the feeble garrison of a distant fortress. They were repulsed, and their disappointment seemed to diminish the terror of the Gothic name. As long as Circassianus, an offer of superior rank and merit, defended that frontier, all their efforts were ineffectual. But as soon as he was removed by Valerian to a more honourable but less important station, they resumed the attack of Pytheus and by the destruction of that city, obliterated the memory of their former disgrace. Circling round the eastern extremity of the Euxine Sea, the navigation from Piteus to Trabzond is about three hundred miles. The course of the Goths carried them in sight of the country of Colchis, so famous by the expedition of the Argonauts, and they even attempted, though without success, to pillage a rich temple at the mouth of the river Phasis. Trebzond, celebrated in the retreat of the Ten Thousand as an ancient colony of Greeks, derived its wealth and splendour from the magnificence of the Emperor Hadrian, who had constructed an artificial port on a coast left destitute by nature of secure harbours. The city was large and populous. A double enclosure of walls seemed to defy the fury of the Goths, and the usual garrison had been strengthened by a reinforcement of ten thousand men. But there were not any advantages capable of supplying the absence of discipline and vigilance. The numerous garrison of Trebzond dissolved in riot and luxury, 
disdained to guard their impregnable fortifications. The Goths soon discovered the supine negligence of the besieged, erected a lofty pile of fascines, ascended the walls in the silence of the night, and entered the defenceless city sword in hand. A general massacre of the people ensued, whilst the affrighted soldiers escaped through the opposite gates of the town. The most holy temples and the most splendid edifices were involved in a common destruction. The booty that fell into the hands of the Goths was immense. The wealth of the adjacent countries had been deposited in Tresbond as in a secure place of refuge. The number of captives was incredible, as the victorious barbarians ranged, without opposition, through the extensive province of Pontus. The rich spoils of Trebzond filled a great fleet of ships that had been found in the port. The robust youth of the sea-coast were chained to the oar, and the Goths, satisfied with the success of their first naval expedition, returned in triumph to their new establishment in the kingdom of Bosphorus. The second expedition of the Goths was undertaken with greater powers of men and ships, but they steered a different course and disdaining the exhausted provinces of Pontus, followed the western coast of the Euxine, passed before the wide mouth of the Brucianus, the Niester, and the Danube, and increasing their fleet by the capture of a great number of fishing-barks, they approached the narrow outlet through which the Euxine Sea pours its waters into the Mediterranean, and divides the continents of Europe and Asia. The garrison of Chalcedon was encamped near the temple of Jupiter Urius, on a promontory that commanded the entrance of the strait. And so inconsiderable were the dreaded invasions of the barbarians, that this body of troops surpassed in number the Gothic army. But it was in numbers alone that they surpassed it. They deserted with precipitation their advantageous post, and abandoned the town of Chalcedon, most plentifully stored with arms and money, to the discretion of the conquerors. Whilst they hesitated whether they should prefer the sea, or land of Europe or Asia, for the scene of their hostilities, a perfidious fugitive pointed out Nicomedia, once the capital of the kings of Bithynia, as a rich and easy conquest. He guided the march, which was only sixty miles from the camp of Chalcedon, directed the resistless attack, and partook of the booty for the Goths had learned sufficient policy to reward the traitor whom they detested. Nice, Prussia, Apamia, Caius, cities that had sometimes rivalled or intimidated the splendour of Nicomedia, were involved in the same calamity, which, in a few weeks, raged without control through the whole province of Bithynia. Three hundred years of peace, enjoyed by the soft inhabitants of Asia, had abolished the excise of arms and removed the apprehension of danger. The ancient walls were suffered to moulder away, and all the revenue of the most opulent cities was resolved for the construction of baths, temples, and theatres. When the city of Cyzicus withstood the utmost effort of Mithridates, it was distinguished by wise laws, a naval power of two hundred galleys, and three arsenals, of arms, of military engines, and of corn. It was still the seat of wealth and luxury, but of its ancient strength nothing remained except the situation, in a little island off the Propontis, 
connected with the continent of Asia only by two bridges. From the recent sack of Prussia, the Goths advanced within eighteen miles of the city, which they had devoted to destruction. But the ruin of Cyzicus was delayed by a fortunate accident. The season was rainy, and the lake Apollinatis, the reservoir of all springs of Mount Olympus, rose to an uncommon height. The little river of Rhindacus, which issued from the lake, swelled into a broad and rapid stream, and stopped the progress of the Goths. Their retreat to the maritime city of Heraclea, where the fleet had probably been stationed, was attended by a long train of wagons laden with the spoils of Bithania, and was marked by the flames of Nice and Nicomedia, which they wantonly burnt. Some obscure hints are mentioned of a doubtful combat that secured their retreat. But even a complete victory would have been of little moment, as the approach of the autumn equinox summoned them to hasten their return. To navigate the Euxine before the month of May, or after that of September, is esteemed by the modern Turks the most unquestionable instance of rashness and folly. When we are informed that the third fleet, equipped by the Goths in the port of Bosphorus, consisted of five hundred sails of ships, our ready imagination instantly computes and multiplies the formidable armament. But, as we are assured by the judicious Starbo, that the piratical vessels used by the barbarians of Pontus and the lesser Scythia were not capable of containing more than twenty-five or thirty men, we may safely affirm that fifteen thousand warriors, at the most, embarked in this great expedition. Impatient at the limits of the Euxin, they steered their destructive course from the Chimerian to the Thracian Bosphorus. When they had almost gained the middle of the straits, they were suddenly driven back to the entrance of them, till a favourable wind, springing up the next day, carried them in a few hours into the placid sea or rather lake, of the Propontius. Their landing on the little island of Sisychus was attended with the ruin of that ancient and noble city. From thence, issuing again through the narrow passage of the Hellespont, they pursued the winding navigation amidst the numerous islands scattered over the archipelago, or the Aegean Sea. The assistance of captives and deserters must have been very necessary to pilot their vessels, and to direct their various incursions, as well on the coast of Greece as on that of Asia. At length the Gothic fleet anchored in the port of Piraeus, five miles distant from Athens, which had attempted to make some preparations for a vigorous defence. Cleodamus, one of the engineers employed by the emperor's orders to fortify the maritime cities against the Goths, had already begun to repair the ancient walls, fallen to decay since the time of Scylla. The efforts of his skill were ineffectual, and the barbarians became masters of the native seat of the Muses and the Arts. But while the conquerors abandoned themselves to the license of plunder and impertinence, their fleet, that lay with the slender guard in the harbour of Piraeus, was unexpectedly attacked by the brave Daxippus who, flying with the engineer Cleodamus, from the sack of Athens, collected the hasty band of volunteers, peasants as well as soldiers, and in some measure avenged the calamities of his country. But this exploit, 
whatever lustre it might shed on the declining age of Athens, served rather to irritate than to subdue the undaunted spirit of the northern invaders. A general conflagration blazed out at the same time in every district of Greece. Thebes and Argus, Corinth and Sparta, which had formerly waged such memorable wars against each other, were now unable to bring an army into the field, or even to defend their ruined fortifications. The rage of war, both by land and by sea, spread from the eastern point of Sunim to the western coast of Epirus. The Goths had already advanced within sight of Italy, when the approach of such imminent danger awakened the indolent Gallienus from his dream of pleasure. The emperor appeared in arms, and his presence seemed to have checked the ardour, and to have divided the strength of the enemy. Nalobatus, a chief of the Heruli, accepted an honourable capitulation, entered with a large body of his countrymen into the service of Rome, and was invested with the ornaments of a consular dignity, which had never before been profaned by the hands of a barbarian. Great numbers of the Goths, disgusted with the perils and hardships of a tedious voyage, broke into Mercia, with a design of forcing their way over the Danube to their settlements in the Ukraine. The wild attempt would have proved inevitable destruction, if the discord of the Roman generals had not opened to the barbarians the means of an escape. The small remainder of this destroying host returned on board their vessels, and measuring back their way through the Hellespont and the Borysphus, ravaged in their passage the shores of Troy, whose fame, immortalized by Homer, will probably survive the memory of the Gothic conquests. As soon as they found themselves in safety within the basin of the Euxine, they landed at Ancalus in Thrace, near the foot of Mount Hamus, and after all their toils indulged themselves in the use of those pleasant and sultry hot baths. What remained of the voyage was a short and easy navigation. Such was the various fate of the third and greatest of their naval enterprises. It may seem difficult to conceive how the original body of fifteen thousand warriors could sustain the losses and diversions of so bold an adventure. But as their numbers were gradually wasted by the sword, by shipwrecks, and by the influence of a warm climate, they were perpetually renewed by troops of banditti and deserters, who flocked to the standard of plunder, and by a crowd of fugitive slaves, often of German or Sarmatian extraction, who eagerly seized the glorious opportunity of freedom and revenge. In these expeditions the Gothic nation claimed a superior share of honour and danger. But the tribes that fought under the Gothic banners are sometimes distinguished and sometimes confounded in the imperfect histories of that age. And as the barbarian fleet seemed to issue from the mouth of the Tanis, the vague but familiar appellation of Scythians was frequently bestowed on the mixed multitude. End of chapter 10, part 3